Corinthians chapter 4. And let me share with you what we've been looking at. As we've gone through this series, we're discovering the signs of a supernaturally changed heart. The signs of a heart that have been impacted by faith in Jesus Christ. And, and now it's flowing out in a way that demonstrates that God is at work in this person's life. The way we see that is through qualities that we may not see as very exciting at times. Words like gentleness, kindness. But we do think love, patience, peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the fruit of the Spirit. And in Scripture, they're the signs of a life that's being transformed and has been transformed by the grace of God. And today we come to this idea of gentleness. That doesn't sound like a masculine term, right? We don't think of men as wanting to be gentle, but Jesus was described as gentle, and he actually used the word meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And in 1 Corinthians, really, the issue that Paul's addressing when you read the book of 1 Corinthians, is a church that's dominated by pride. This was a young church. This was a hip church. See, when you went to Corinth, you went to Corinth because you had talents and abilities, and you wanted to be in the New York of the old times. You wanted to be in the center of commerce, the center of innovation. Well, that was Corinth. And so when you were in Corinth, you were in a, a living, breathing place, a place of different cultures. And these were a lot of young individuals that had come to faith in Christ. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 says, your talents are great, your commitment is great, your heart, it stinks. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it seeks no record of wrongs. Paul says, there's something arrogant about your heart. And in this passage, in chap the end of chapter 3, actually I lied to you a little bit, not lied, just deceived, uh, and that may be a lie, but at the end, of we're going to look at the end of chapter 3, verse 21, so if you want to put your finger there. And read all the way to chapter 4, uh, what Paul's addressing is this issue of pride. And the issue of how the real struggle we have and what we need to see through the church is humility, gentleness. Now, let, let me just roll this back a little bit so that we can see the cultural context that we're dealing with today and how this might apply. And then when you go home today, as you head out, we're going to give you a gift. Because I want you to know I'm just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And I found some bread and a message that came from this passage by a man named Tim Keller. And even though this is a Father's Day gift, we are not prejudiced towards women today. We, any, any one of you, anybody can take this. So as you head out, this is essentially uh, where this message is coming from. So I want to be honest today that I'm plagiarizing uh, this message from Tim Keller. But it's a message that really impacted my heart. And here's how he described the challenge and where this passage fits really in our cultural context is that in traditional cultures, in traditional times, what people saw was the problem with mankind is too high a view of yourself. Traditional cultures, even today, they will say the issue with mankind is hubris. Maybe that's the virtue, the way they describe it. It's having too high a view. So traditional cultures try to knock you down. Traditional cultures sometimes are not kind. They want to pull you down because they see the problem with the world. The reason people, men abuse women, the reason people lie, fall into addictions is they have too high a view of themselves. Now, in the last hundred years, we've gone completely in the opposite direction. Our modern culture doesn't think the problem is that you have too high a view. Our modern culture says the real issue in our culture today, the reason people abuse one another, they lie, they cheat, they steal, is because they have too low a view of themselves. And if they just had a higher view, they wouldn't steal, they wouldn't cheat. If they just had a higher view, self-esteem, that they viewed themselves highly, 
they wouldn't fall into the kind of behaviors that they're falling into. In our culture, our education system, our criminal system in some ways, our culture, our pop psychology is all based on this idea that the solution to mankind is that we need to have a higher view of ourselves. Now, when we get into this passage, we're going to discover Paul's, he's not concerned with having a low view. Though I think Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. So there's a sense in which we need to see ourselves from God's perspective and love ourselves. But the problem with mankind is not that we have too low a view. And Paul's going to even say, you know, the issue is not that we have too high a view. The issue is the need to think about ourselves at all. The problem with mankind is that we're so focused on ourselves that we lose sight of God. And that's the issue that drives the problem in our culture today. So let's jump into it. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to pick it up in verse 21. And we're going to go down to chapter 4, verse 7. Verse 21. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death, the present, the future, all are yours and yours are Christ. And Christ is God's. Verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Verse 6, I've applied all these things to myself, Apollos, for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Hey, if you jump back again to chapter 3, and if you've got a Bible that needs to turn the page, in verse 21, he describes the situation that they're dealing with. And you see these names, right? Paul, Apollo, Cephas, what was happening in that church is people were boasting in their relationships. And they would say, you know, I'm a leader who has been discipled by Paul. I'm the stuff. I'm a leader who is discipled and mentored by Apollos. And Apollos apparently was a good orator. Hey, I'm the guy. I need to be in charge. And some said, no, it's not about Paul. I mean, he's great. Apollos, great speaker. Peter. Peter has the passion. I'm associated with Peter. And so in this church, this young church, all of them were vying for positions and they were arguing that, hey, I'm the better leader. I should have power and authority because who I'm associated with. And Paul says, you're not seeing things rightly. Because here's the idea in actually verse 23. What matters is that you are Christ's. What matters is not who you have a relationship. What matters is not the talents you have. What matters is not the abilities you have. All of those things are great. But if you don't recognize that you belong to Christ, and if it doesn't melt your heart that Christ belongs to God, which means that you are, as Paul says, hidden with Christ in God. That's a warm blanket right there. You are hidden with Christ in God. That is your position. And because of that, verses 1 and 2 are true. 
See, if you look at verse 1 and 2, what he's describing of himself, he's saying, what is Paul? What's Apollos? What's Peter? They're just servants. But they're also stewards. And what they're stewards of is the same thing you and I are stewards of, is we are stewards of the mysteries of God. That's just a creative way of saying the gospel. We are stewards of the greatest message that has ever been told, the greatest story ever told, and it is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have the opportunity, on the one hand, to serve and to be stewards of this message. And because of that, because this is our identity, that we belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God and we're hidden with Christ and God, because of that, here's what matters. In verse 2, here's, here's what really matters. It is required as stewards that they be found trustworthy. What matters is that we are found faithful. But see, here's what messes that up. Here's the challenge, and if you look in verse 6, he describes what the problem is. The problem is that we're comparing one person with another. The essence of pride comes from comparison. Because listen, if you're alone, it's pretty hard to be prideful. Because no one's impressed. You know, when you're alone and you're looking at yourself in the mirror, I mean, that's just weird. It's vain, right? It's only pride when you look at someone else and you say, you know, I'm, I'm smarter. Hey, I'm stronger. I'm better. Or sometimes pride is not exercised in a feeling of superiority. You may not realize this. Pride is just as equally expressed in a feeling of inferiority. I'm weaker. I'm ugly. I'm a little, I'm a little heavy. I'm not as smart. I'm not as quick. See, in both those cases, pride has to do with the focus not on God but on yourself. See, pride is really the idea that we are centered on the problem, which is the human ego. And the problem with the human ego, as you look again in verse 6, that the human ego, as he describes the condition, therefore do not pronounce judge. Actually, that's verse 5. Verse 6 says, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. And notice the language, that none of you, and here's the word, may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. Now, that word puffed up, two words, but in the Greek it's one word. And it's not the traditional Greek word for pride. It's a unique word that Paul really applies in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's used seven times. Commentators say Paul chose this word. He only applies it once in another book, which is Colossians. But in the book of 1 Corinthians, he uses this word puffed up seven times. Commentators say he's using this to describe the problem that the Corinthian church was facing. And it's really the problem of the human ego. And here's the condition that he's describing. The human ego is puffed up. Now, what that means in the Greek is to be distended, to be overinflated. Have you ever had that feeling, being distended, overinflated? Something might explode. There's a little gas. You've eaten something. It's not sitting well, and you start to hear the rumble. You wonder if anyone else hears it. You wonder where the bathroom is. Your body begins to bellow, and you, and you start to, you know you're in a dangerous place because there's pain, there's bloatedness. It's as if air has been shoved into your body, and it needs to be released. I'm being honest with you. That's the Greek word. It's to bellow. And what he's describing is the problem isn't high self-esteem. The problem is not low self-esteem. Those are different issues. The problem is the need for the person to focus on themselves. The problem is the brokenness of the human condition that we're so puffed up 
that we have to focus on ourselves. You know, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, and I take a lot of quotes from C.S. Lewis, but he describes the problem of pride this way. He says, pride is essentially competitive. It is competitive by its very nature. While other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident, see, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer, cleverer, better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. That's puffed up. Paul says the issue, the problem with humility is pride. And the problem with pride is the need to focus on ourselves. Now, what's the solution? See, as you jump down again, verse 23, I think, is the key verse where he says, our identity is in Christ, but we can't stay there. Like a cat, we constantly run away. We can't sit in our identity in Christ and see ourselves as belonging to God. Rather, in verses 3 and 4, here's how comparison works itself out. We're often, I think, in our culture feeling judged. Now, maybe we're the judge and we don't feel judged because we're judging others. But often in our culture, there's a comparison. And so listen to the unique way that Paul describes himself. In verse 3, here's how he describes himself. He says, with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. Verse 4, in fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. Now, what is that? How would you describe that kind of language? I'm not concerned what you think, but I'm not concerned what I think. You read that at first, it sounds like pride. I don't care what you think. I don't care what I think. What, how, what kind of person walks with that kind of identity? They're not connected to what the culture thinks. But what does it mean to not be connected with what I think? And then he gets down to this idea, it's the Lord who judges me. Now, this word judge, you'll notice it's repeated often, which could tell you that's a theme of this passage. Part of the problem with pride is judging. And to judge means to come to a conclusion or to make a verdict. See, to judge, it simply means when he says, I'm not being judged by you, it doesn't mean he doesn't care what you think. It's a level of narcissism to not care what people think. That's a dangerous place to go. And I know many in our culture say, just set your own standards, don't care what others think. That's not a safe place to walk. To be judged, Paul's not saying, I don't care what you think. He's saying, what you think isn't my conclusion of myself. What you think isn't my verdict. My verdict doesn't come from what the world says. My, my verdict doesn't come from what the church says. But here's amazing. It doesn't even come from what I say. Because maybe I'm innocent. Or maybe I'm having a good day and I'm not feeling guilty. But sometimes I should. Sometimes we have an underactive conscience. I'm feeling really good about myself, but I really should be walking in some conviction. And some of you have an overactive conscience, right? Constantly convicted, and yet there's really nothing wrong. Paul has a unique identity that it's not the world and what it says that's my verdict. It's not what you say that's my verdict. And it's not even what I say that is my verdict. It's the Lord who judges me, which means my verdict comes from a sense of self-forgetfulness 
in the judgment of God. It comes, humility comes from a self-forgetfulness because God's judgment of me is so satisfying, so complete, so true to who I know myself to be as I walk out in the world. It's the Lord's view of me that determines who I am. And so he says in verse 5, don't pronounce judgment before the time. And here's why. Because see, when the Lord comes, he's going to bring to light the things that are now hidden in the darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. The danger with judging someone is you don't know their motivations. I know we think we do. I, I know often that's what we think about, isn't it? When we're seeing that person, what they've done, we see their motives and they're as clear as day. And yet Paul's saying, the reason that I'm not a good judge of myself is I don't often know myself. I don't know when I deserve condemnation or commendation. It's the Lord who judges me. What we're describing is humility. And Paul would say, humility is not thinking of yourself less. Humility is the ability to not think about yourself. It's not thinking of yourself less. It's being self-forgetful. It's God's identity being the identity that drives your behavior. That the verdict drives the performance, not the performance leading to the verdict. I'll explain that. Now, here's somebody who we may see as a person of great confidence, this guy named Moses. Moses had a tough job to go to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at the time, and say, you know, Pharaoh... I know your gross national product, you're rising. In terms of countries, you're number one. I'd like to take all of that down. I'd like you to release your free slave labor force, everything that's caused you to become a superpower in the world, militarily, economically, all of that, your greatness. Would you just give that up and let my people go? You know, you would think, you know, Charlton Heston, he was pretty confident, but Moses... Yeah, some of us are too young, right, for that. That's an that's a old reference. Moses, you would think that to, to walk into Pharaoh's throne room and say, let my people go, you've got to have a high self-esteem. And yet you, you find out when, before Moses met God and God said, hey, Moses, I want to use you, he said, I stutter. I'm not, a, I'm not an eloquent man. There are meaning comparison. Where does pride come from? Comparison, one man against the other, whether it's inferiority or superiority, Moses says, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. Doggone it, people don't like me. <laughs> I'm getting a little more, more modern, right? I'm kind of moving it up. Moses was comparing himself. Where did his confidence come from? I want you to hear this in, in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. Listen to how the book of Numbers described Moses after he encountered God. It says, now, the man Moses was very meek. He was humble. More than all the people who were on the face of the earth. See, Moses' confidence didn't come from his comparison with others. It didn't come from his weakness. It came from what the Lord had said. And the Lord said, Moses, I want to use you. Now, he didn't know if it was going to turn out well. We've got the end of the story. He didn't know how the end of the story was written. All he had was faith, and he had the verdict. God said, Moses, I'm going to use you. Will you trust me? You know, another guy did that. His name was David. And again, we see David and we say, oh, he's a mighty man. He had mighty men. And so David must have been a man of high confidence, right? The weakest of the batch, last guy chosen out in the fields, shepherd. Not even Saul had confidence in him. But he had confidence not in himself and his abilities, 
See, David had confidence in the Lord. He had confidence in God and what God had said. So when he came against Goliath, he didn't say, Goliath, I'm going to take you down. Goliath, you were weak. You were small. You were insignificant. That's not his attitude. It wasn't arrogance. And he didn't, in a sense, fear what might happen. What he said was, my confidence is in the Lord God Almighty. I don't know how this is going to turn out. I know you're bigger than me. I know you can take me. But the fact is, David in that moment was meek. He didn't view Goliath's view of himself as the verdict, or his view of himself was the verdict, or Goliath, what he saw, it was the Lord's view. That's what enabled him to walk in a confidence that was humble. Humility, confidence mixed in one. Where does that come from? Paul says in verse 4, it's, it comes from the fact that the Lord judges me. It's the Lord who judges me. See, how do we apply this? We see on the one hand, the ego is puffed up. It's inflated. It's painful. The solution is not to see ourselves from the world's perspective, not even just to evaluate ourselves from our perspective. You see, in our world, the performance leads to the verdict. It's called, uh, you know, when you sit down and you're being reviewed at your job, you're hoping the performance leads to a good verdict. And in life, our, our life is lived on this idea that the performance, if it's good enough, hopefully the verdict will come in and I'll be accepted. But see, in the gospel, in Christianity, it's not the performance leading to the verdict. No, it's the verdict that drives the performance. It's the verdict of what God says that drives the behavior and the performance, which leads us to humility. Because on the one hand, the gospel says, I am so sinful that Jesus Christ had to die for me. That leads to humility, a proper view of the self, and yet courage. I am so loved, he was willing to die for me. See, what Paul describes in this language of judgment and this language of not being acquitted is he recognizes every day as we walk out into the world, we walk out into the world, and in that world, there's a courtroom. And in that courtroom, evidence is definitely being collected. It's being collected by others, and sometimes we know it's being collected. We can feel the eyes in the back of our head. We, we know that people are watching us, and sometimes it's being collected by us. But there is a prosecutor and there is a defense attorney. Often the prosecutor is much louder, at least in my life, than the defense attorney. And in my life and all the behaviors, the things that I'm doing, some days things are good, right? You feel good about yourself. People love you. You're successful. You get the promotion. The deal falls through. The wife's good. Everything's going well. The kids like you. That's a good day. Maybe high self-esteem. But then there's other days it's not so good. It's, it's foggy out foggy in, inside the brain, and inside my life is all fog, and things aren't going well, and it seems as if it's not high self, it's low self, and all throughout the day, isn't it? Sometimes we're feeling snubbed. Why did he say that to me like that? What is she thinking? The ego's constantly drawing. We're constantly feeling judged. We're feeling rejected, or we're constantly feeling superior, wondering how we measure up. Am I beautiful enough? I guess not. <laughs> Is that, is that a cue? I'm done. That's what that was right there, a little humility in the humility sermon. The point is we're, we're living in a courtroom, and I'm on stage, and the lights are on us. And the beauty of the gospel is we can leave the courtroom behind. You see, this word acquitted, if, if just quickly before, before we close, this word acquitted in verse 4, he says, I'm not aware of anything against myself, 
but I'm not thereby acquitted. That word acquitted in the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, it's translated righteousness. What he's saying is just because I feel good about myself today, that doesn't make me righteous. That doesn't make me right with God. Meaning that the verdict in my life doesn't come from how well I'm doing, doesn't come from how well the world says I'm doing, it doesn't even come from how well I think I'm doing. The verdict can only come from God. And what the world doesn't realize, sometimes what we don't realize, is that what we're really pursuing in life is this word, righteousness. We want to know that we're right. Have you ever had that experience? Sometimes we can do this for each other. You know, with a single word, you can rewrite somebody's identity. With a single word, and sometimes to a good degree, we can simply rewrite somebody's identity, somebody that's been abused, somebody that's been broken, somebody that's been rejected. And simply with a sim- single word, just say, you know, you're loved. You're significant. We see that on a human plane, don't we? We value those moments when they rarely come. If that is true on a human plane, how much more true is that when it comes from God? When the verdict is in. And God says to us what he said to his son because of faith in Jesus Christ. You are my daughter, whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. And we say to the father, but I haven't done anything. And you know, neither had Jesus. You know when that was first said? It's early in the gospels. It's his baptism. What had he done? There's no real miracle stories. Instead, the only thing we know about him is that he was... At the age of 12 in a temple someplace, his parents were looking. There's nothing we really know about Jesus, but the first thing we hear is the verdict. You are my son, whom I love, and you I'm well pleased. Don't you think in the humanity of Jesus the verdict led to the performance? Because as he, before he went to the cross, after it was all said and done, we hear the exact same words on the Mount of Transfiguration. You are my son, whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. And the beauty of the gospel is that while we're yet sinners, right, Christ died for us. While we're yet sinners, that while I was at my lowest, my self-esteem was down or whether it was high, it doesn't matter. I was broken. I was in need of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. While I was a sinner, Christ died for me. And Paul says in Romans 8, 1, there is now for those who are in Christ Jesus, no condemnation. Why? Realize, in Christianity, you've left the courtroom behind. There is no courtroom. Except for the one that we carry with us. Except for the one that we choose to walk into, the way we compare ourselves. The courtroom is left behind. Let me close with this this picture. Hopefully, we'll go back and read this. In John chapter 8, there's a, a story of a courtroom. It's not a good courtroom. There's a woman who was actually caught in the act of adultery by a group of men. So you know something's wrong in this scenario. And Jesus says to these men who have brought this woman, and she's broken by the world. She's caught in this act of adultery. I imagine she may not feel well about herself. Or let's just assume she does. She has incredibly high self-esteem. It doesn't really matter. But she's caught. She's brought out. She's condemned. She's exposed. She's likely naked in front of a group of angry men with stones. And he looks at these men and says, If any of you are without sin... Now, he's not saying only a perfect man can judge because that doesn't make sense. What he's saying is, if any of you are innocent in this moment, if any of you are innocent in presenting this woman, because where's the man? 
And you have to admit, if this woman's unclothed, there's probably some lust and adultery taking place. And he's saying to these men, if you are righteous, cast the first stone. Then he goes back to drawing or something and turns to the woman later on and says, you know, have they, have they gone? Has no one condemned you? Yeah, no one, Lord. Here's the verdict. Neither do I condemn you. Meaning I can, but you're accepted. I can, but I'm declaring you righteous. And here's the performance. Go and sin no more. This woman had an experience of a new verdict. She had an experience of a new identity. It wasn't the way the men were saying about it. It wasn't the way she felt about herself. In that moment, the gospel became real. It came into the heart through faith in Jesus Christ. Because in that moment, Jesus sealed his death. That he is going to die on the cross for her sins, her brokenness. So that his rightness with God would become her rightness with God. His righteousness, her righteousness. And his love with the Father, her love with the Father. That's the verdict. And what happened? Go now and sin no more. The problem in the Christian life is we're putting the performance way ahead of the verdict. We're celebrating our weakness and our performance, our sin management, instead of celebrating the beauty of the gospel. What's humility? It's knowing I'm so sinful Christ had to die for me. But on the other hand, I am so loved, I'm so treasured that Christ was willing to die for me. When that settles into the heart, the beauty is in rare moments we become self-forgetful. We become so caught up in God and his glory and his goodness that that determines the way we understand ourselves because the verdict is now leading to the performance. There's no condemnation. And rather what I am walking in is the depths and the widths and the heights of the love of God. You see that? What's humility? It's not thinking less of yourself. It's not the need to think more of yourself. It's not thinking of yourself but it's allowing your identity to be wrapped up in what God says. That requires faith and trust to not go beyond what is written, but to allow his voice to be the voice that gives us the verdict in the only courtroom that matters with the only judge that knows the motives of the heart. And he says, not guilty. You are my child and I've adopted you. Do you see that? If we could simply walk in that, that would make an impact in the lives of the people around us. Let me pray for us.